0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com freebooks free books for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, a biblical response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, Copyright 1981 Chapter 5, The Third World The Right to Nationalize Foreign Holdings Ronald Sider, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, page 145 You Shall Not Steal, Exodus 20, verse 15 About 25 years ago, the term Third World came into prominence It's a concept of primary importance for socialists, a fraud which can be used for many purposes. Clarence Carson observes, For a brief period it looked as if the third world might become a definite entity, but it did not. It has remained largely a concept with whatever content one wished to ascribe to it. Where the world has been divided into capitalist and communist factions, the third world concept is supposed, is supposed to refer to non-aligned, less developed countries, although exactly which countries are included depends entirely on who is currently using the term and what axe he is grinding. Non-alignment in third world nations serves the purposes of revolutionary socialism as well. Now the world is divided between between the industrialized Western exploiters and the non-industrialized exploited nations of the third world. Western businessmen who invest in less developed countries are, it is said, neo-colonial powers obscenely profiting from their economic control over the poor nations. Of course, now that some of the third world countries are making money, A new division is required, and a fourth world has emerged. The culprits absconding with the best of both worlds are naturally the industrial concerns of the West. There is a great political advantage brought about by making use of this concept, particularly for the leaders of third and fourth world nations. All their woes have been visited upon them by outsiders. As Carson describes it, not only did communists subscribe to the notion that Western imperialism had been a system of exploitation of subject peoples, but so did most Western intellectuals. This gave third world politicians ready-made enemies, Western imperialists, something most useful to politicians, especially when the enemies are not constituents. They could appeal for the unity of their peoples against these outsiders. It also provided an explanation of an excuse for their economic backwardness. They were not to blame for their conditions. They had been overcome by superior technology and exploited by Westerners. Indeed, the third world concept was and is an irresponsible concept. The third world countries are not, according to the concept, responsible for the conditions which prevail there, and they accept little or no responsibility for what goes on in the world. If, or better still, when, since it is only a matter of time, they confiscate the private property of foreign investors, or foreigners in generally, the concept justified that too. After all, the foreigners had only been there to exploit them. One example of such exploitation given by Cider, is that of the infamous banana caper, in which three large Western fruit companies used economic leverage in order to keep from paying a new dollar per case tax on the bananas they exported from countries in Central America. Cider explains how the tax was reduced in one country, in order to increase profits for a U.S. company and to lower banana prices for you and me. The Honduran government agreed for a bribe to cut drastically the export tax, even though the money was desperately needed in Honduras. Cider gives the impression that somehow this tax would have helped relieve poverty. It was desperately needed. Yet a page later, cider trying to increase our guilt, charges dictators representing a tiny wealthy elite that works closely with American business interests, rule Honduras. Thus, the poor are are helpless. If the dictators do nothing for the poor, and if they represent a tiny wealthy elite, just what was the money desperately needed for? The truth is this. This tax was set by the Central American dictators in order to raise reserves for themselves. In other words, it was a bribe. The fruit companies made a very logical decision in terms of a complex economic theory that goes something like this. A higher price costs more money than a lower price does. The bribe they paid was simply the result of economic bargaining with unjust dictators who were seeking to line their own pockets, and who, by the way, were charging a tax which they had no biblical right to charge. The fruit companies saw an opportunity to reduce the ransom for their products. The guilt lies not with them, but with the dictators who demanded the bribe in the first place. Sider's attempt to make you feel guilty for eating bananas is a hoax. In his twisted system, it is perfectly all right for a poor, oppressed, wealthy, elitist dictator to force you to pay a bribe, but it is is a sin for you to try to lower the price. Get it? His logic is as solid as a banana. The third world concept implies and often states that the economics of underdeveloped countries is somehow different from traditional economics, that the third world operates by different by different economic laws. It presents the less developed countries as a substantially homogenous and stagnant mass sharply distinct from the developed world. The most succinct statement of this position was made by Ragnar Nersk, a country is poor because it is poor. A vicious cycle of poverty exists, and there is no way for a poor, mate, poor nation to advance. The gap between the rich and the poor nations is enormous. And in Sider's Word, the chasm widens every year. What to do? The only answer that occurs to gapologist is that a foreign aid is that of foreign aid from industrial nations. Sider's whole book, in fact, is premised on the idea that there is just no other way out. P.T. Bauer comments, Much of the literature suggests that the world was somehow created in two parts. One part with a ready-made infrastructure of railways, roads, ports, pipelines, and public utilities, which has therefore been able to develop, and the other, which the creator unfortunately forgot to endow with social overhead capital. This is not the way things have happened. Economic laws do not change from country to country or from age to age. Underdeveloped countries can progress only in the same ways that developed countries have grown through capital investment which should be distinguished from foreign aid, as we shall see later on. But many in the leadership of the third world are blind to this fact. Rothbard mentions a central problem. Underdeveloped countries are especially prone to the wasteful, dramatic, prestigious government investment in such projects as steel mills or dams, as contrasted with economic but undramatic private investment, In agricultural tools. It must be acknowledged that Ronald Sider wants to concentrate on agricultural production, but one, he wants to accomplish it through unbiblical means, foreign aid, government intervention, and the redistribution programs, etc., and therefore, two, it won't work He admits that the poor in these nations are oppressed by their dictatorial leaders, yet he plans to alleviate their problems by increasing the wealth and power over the very states which are oppressing them. P.T. Bauer explains how it works. Unlike manna from heaven, official aid does not descend indiscriminately on the population of the recipient country. It accrues to specific groups of people in positions of power and sets up repercussions often damaging to development, notably by contributing to the polit- politi- politization of economic life. Cider's proposals will not result in more agricultural production, but less. The flow of aid and the preferential treatment of governments engaged in comprehensive planning or experiencing balance of payments difficulties have reinforced the tendency of governments of underdeveloped countries to neglect agriculture. They assume that aid givers will come to the rescue in the event of a serious food shortage and consequently feel freer to divert their resources to industrial or prestigious prestige projects. One of the fallacies of much of the gap rhetoric is the idea that per capita income statistics are at, at all meaningful. Ciders notes that 750 million people live on less than $75 per year, though he admits that exact figures are not available. That's putting it mildly. The margin of error in international estimates of incomes and living standards is really quite large. The basis of such statistics, population estimates, are very unreliable, often with discrepancies in the tens of millions. This fact is compounded by the conceptual errors of income figures themselves. Purchasing power in underdeveloped countries is radically underestimated and camouflaged by such measurements for example that $75 per fi- per year figure above could you possibly live on that sum cider's implication is that 750 million people subsist on nothing more than the goods and services which you could purchase in the united states for $75 if this were true, they would not live out even a year. Yet Cider tells us they are having a population explosion which threatens to engulf the whole world. Naturally, a rise in population means a corresponding fall in the death rate, and income is more than money alone, regardless of Cider's materialistic assumption. There is also psychic income, such as the pleasure derived from having children. And contrary to Sider's patronizing attitude, these people are not stupid. They could, if they chose, refrain from having so many children. To assume that they were unable rather than unwilling to do so betrays a condescending air which is certainly unwarranted and neglects to treat them as men. In addition, most people do derive satisfaction from living longer And this, too, is psychic income. The statistics also disregard bartering and oversight, which can throw off the figures widely. For all these reasons, monetary income figures are virtually meaningless in comparing international living standards. But skillfully manipulated, they can produce guilt and guilt sells books. There is no doubt, however, that hunger and starvation exist in many third-world countries, and we need to have a biblical understanding of this. Before man fell in the garden, his labor was not spent in scrounging for food. It was abundant and cheap. Instead, labor was expended in scientific, ascetic, and productive activity. Genesis one twenty-six to 26-29 2 verse 15 and 19 and 20. Man was able to turn his energy toward investigating, beautifying, and developing his environment. When men rebelled and attempted to steal God's throne, he was expelled from the garden and forced to spend much more of his time and energy obtaining food, and food became much harder to get, Genesis 3, 18 and 19. This is God's curse on men whenever they rebel. The land itself spews them out. Leviticus eighteen twenty four to twenty eight and Isaiah twenty four. The curse devours productivity in every area, and the ungodly culture perishes. Deuteronomy twenty eight, fifteen through twenty six. They suffer terrible disease, Deuteronomy twenty eight twenty seven, and are politically oppressed. Deuteronomy 28, 28 through 34. This is how God controls heathen cultures. They must spend so much time surviving that they are unable to exercise ungodly dominion over the earth. In the long run, this is the history of every culture that departs from God's word. While a culture may seem in the short run to prosper, It is headed for annihilation if it is unfaithful to the standards of biblical law. A heroin addict who has just gotten a fix undoubtedly feels better than you and I do at this moment. But misery and suffering will eventually catch up with it. In terms of biblical law, a culture that that engages in long-term rebellion against God's law will sink to the level of abject poverty and deprivation. The law promises that. Conversely, if a culture has suffered long-term misery, we can make a judgment about its history, which is not to say that we may automatically assume anything about its present inhabitants. They may indeed be very godly. If so, if a cultural transformation has taken place spiritually, they are already on their way toward godly dominion, although the process may take a generation or more to become materially evident. But if God is on his throne, his people will be blessed. He controls the environmental conditions, and he can cause the desert to blossom. Isaiah 35, 43, 19-21. through 21. He will not do it without the spirit being poured out, poured forth in regeneration and sanctification. Physical, material, economic blessings flow from cultural obedience. Isaiah 32:15 through 16. As the gospel progresses throughout a society, food becomes easier to obtain and attention turns again to the original task of godly dominion, which were mandated in the garden. No Protestant culture has yet been plagued by famine, but we should expect famine and more if our national apostasy remains unchecked. Godly cultures have the Puritan work ethic deeply ingrained into their natures, and this has notable effects in economics, rising productivity, rising real wage rates, and accelerating dominion over every area of life. But ungodly men, as we have seen, are slaves by nature. Their sin drives them to lord it over others in ways that are forbidden and economically unproductive, and they are driven to relinquish their proper responsibilities, which are productive, to seek present benefits rather than sacrifice in the present, for future rewards, and to be enslaved by others. The unbelieving culture thus gravitates toward statism and socialism. We can see this in the story of how the disobedient Israelites were enslaved to the state, 1 Samuel chapter 8. The king became, in effect, a substitute god, and they desired that he should save them, They therefore forfeited their cattle, their land, and their produce to him. Eventually, they were forced to surrender their own children into bondage to the state's war machine. The principle here is that your Savior will be your Lord as well, and that when you are saved, you are also enslaved. Ungodly cultures invariably become enslaved to to the state. The economic problem is that socialist society has no means of economic calculation, as Ludwig von Mises constantly pointed out. Where there is no market, there is no price system, and where there is no price system, there can be no economic calculation. Thus, without the market mechanism of profit and loss, the socialist planner has no way to tell where energy and capital should be directed. Surpluses and shortages become the norm, and unanticipated and thus unplanned for events, unusual weather for instance, produce catastrophes as a matter of course. Famine is a common is a commonplace for socialist states. The controlled economy is in fact controlled not by the planners, but by vicissitudes. It is at the mercy of its environment, which is to say God, our ultimate environment, at whose hands a self-deified state may expect little mercy. In a truly Christian culture, the market is free from state control, and the result is that scarcity does not produce shortages. The free market adjusts immediately to continually changing conditions And a shortage does not occur. Shortages have one real cause, price controls. Moreover, God physically blesses the nation that obeys him, and natural disasters are considerably lessened, making it even more certain that goods and services will be available in abundance. An important principle at work in history, it is this. God is continually at work to destroy unbelieving cultures and to give the world over to the dominion of his own people. That, by the way, is what is meant by those verses about God uprooting the rich. See Leviticus 20, verse 22, Deuteronomy 28, Proverbs 2, verse 21 and 22, and 10, verse 30. God works to overthrow the ungodly. And increasingly, the world will come under the dominion of Christians, not by military aggression, but by godly labor, saving, investment, and orientation toward the future. For a time, ungodly men may have possessions, but they are disobedient and become dispossessed. Though he piles up silver like dust, And prepares garments as plentiful as the clay. He may prepare it, but the just shall wear it. And the innocent will divide the silver. Job 27, 16 and 17. This is where history is going. The future belongs to the people of God who obey his laws. The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Proverbs 13, 22. And to the sinner... He has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. Ecclesiastes 2.26 This is what God did with Israel. They inherited already settled lands while God smashed the heathen, having allowed them to build up capital while incurring increasing judgment because of their sins. Genesis 15.13-16 Joshua 11, 19 through twenty, the seventeenth-century Puritan Thomas Watson understood this well. The meek Christian is said to inherit the earth because he inherits the blessing of the earth. The wicked man has the earth, but not as a fruit of God's favor. He has it as a dog has poisoned bread. It does him no. More, it does him more hurt than good. A wicked man lives in the earth as one that lives in an infectious air. He is infected by his mercies. The fat of the earth will but make him fry and blaze the more in hell. The most important fact about poor pagans is not that they are poor, but that they are pagans. They are, as Romans 1 reminds us, apostates. Where did, pay, where did pagans come from? They came from the same place we all came from, Noah's Ark. The ancestors of today's pagans knew God, Romans 121. They knew God. They were God's people receiving the blessings of the covenant from his gracious hand. But they deliberately exchanged the worship of the true God For the adoration of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Romans 1:23-25. The central fact about the heathen is that they are living in willful rebellion against the one true God, and therefore under God's curse. The economic issue is a symptom of their condition, but the problem with pagans is primarily religious and ethical. To neglect this central point in order to focus only on their poverty is radically unbiblical and immoral. If pagans are truly to be helped, they and their culture must be converted to the Christian faith. If we seek merely to neutralize the effects of God's righteous judgment against them, we are manifesting contempt for God and our efforts will not be blessed. Our major concern must be to reconcile the heathen to the God whom they have offended. The problem is religious. The solution is religious as well. To take only one example of how the religious issues affect culture, how the wisdom of pagans is actually foolishness, Romans 1.22, consider the pagan view of time. Western civilization has been transformed by the biblical concept of time, involving linear development through history with a beginning, middle, and an end. This is one of the most basic, crucial differences between Christianity and paganism, which tends to view time as cyclical. In India, this non-Christian attitude alone is enough to keep the culture from ever becoming productive. Hinduism sees human existence, it can hardly be called history, in terms of never-ending four-billion-year cycles. Hindi, the nation's most widely spoken language, uses the same word kal for both yesterday and tomorrow with his notions of past and future blurred and mixed together with virtually no comprehension of chronology the hindu's sense of time is an undeveloped is as undeveloped as that of an infant those of the lower caste that is the less westernized indians often know, that, know neither their own birth date nor their age and the ages of their children can any amount of aid render such a culture productive what can be done for a timeless society as a prominent government leader put it i'm going to be reincarnated thousands of times if i don't get something done in this life i have another i have other opportunities Clearly, India's most pressing need is not more grain or financial grants. Indeed, India needs Jesus Christ. The fact that the poor nations are suffering under the judgment of God does not mean we should disregard the real misery of these people, but it does require that we approach them carefully with a biblical, theologically informed mind. Our actions toward them must be concerned with transforming their cultures by the word of God. They will not be eco- economically blessed until they obey him. And we will be cursed if we seek to help them in ways that are forbidden. Poor people need the gospel. The truly liberating message of the salvation provided in Christ must sink down into their innermost beings changing their perspectives completely. They must become disciplined, obedient to God's law. They must renounce their state worship and their envy of those who are better off. They must seek to become free, responsible men under God, building for the future, working and investing in every area of life for the glory of God. They must keep the state in its place, not allowing it to take God's place in controlling the economy. Under God's blessing, they will then prosper. And they need have no fear of a tiny, wealthy elite of dictators, for the ungodly will have fallen, not by revolution, but by the providential judgment of God. He brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. He gave them also the lands of the nations that they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor, so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Psalm 105, 43 through 45.
1: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology.